to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruits of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house and the short ephah which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied, your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing, because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest, you will press olives but not use the oil, you will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Kate, for reading that. Um, I want uh, to begin with a story which is um, told by the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, he tells this story, and I want you to imagine, get into the spirit of it, I want you to imagine that you're sitting in a darkened theatre. The audience around you falls silent and the spotlights find the stage as the show is about to begin. And just then, a man dressed as a clown comes on and starts talking. He looks anxious, and the audience leans in to hear what he's going to say. As he delivers his opening line, there's a fire, you're all going to die, run for your lives. The audience pauses, they're silent for a moment, and nobody moves. And then someone starts laughing at this crazy picture of a clown telling them they're all going to die. And then another person starts laughing and eventually the whole room is in riotous laughter. 
but still nobody moves. And then the clown says it again. No, 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 you don't understand. The theatre is on fire. You're all going to die. Run for your lives. And that the crowd gets even more uh, in, insanely kind of enjoying the, the show, this spectacle that they've come to see. They laugh and they think it's the best performance they've ever seen. But nobody is leaving their seats. They think, this is a great show. But what they don't know, the clown is not pretending. There is a fire and yes, they're all going to die. Now, it's a, a, a fictional story told by the Danish philosopher but you actually can find dozens of examples of this very sort of thing happening. Uh, there was a uh, 2015 terror attack in Paris, you may remember it. Fans were uh, packed into a, a concert hall listening to a death metal band called Eagles of Death when a man came on stage, or men came on stage, three men, with Kalashnikovs, and at first people thought it was part of the show. They stood there, stationary. Or in 2019, there was a Canadian comedian who just told a joke about dying on stage and then he collapsed. Now, there were two doctors in the audience in the front couple of rows, uh, but they thought it was part of the show and so they did nothing. And I raise these stories and the parable that Kierkegaard tells because they're vivid illustrations of something that I think we're very liable to do when hearing from someone like Micah. That is, to appreciate the great art the great performance of a prophet like Micah and to leave it at that. To hear his powerful poetry, uh, to appreciate it as a literary object. What an amazing book Micah is. I think it's amazing. To enjoy the history, to appreciate the theology and to sit there doing nothing. That's the great risk in a great prophet. And that's the situation I want to tell you you're in. I'm in when we hear these words because they aren't just Micah's words to ancient 8th century Israel warning them about God's impending judgment. They're also God's words to us that we need to hear and respond to. So I'm really pleased that uh, you've been doing this series um, uh, in in the book of Micah these last uh, several weeks, these series of oracles from Micah of judgment and hope And I hope that as we hear this 8th century prophet deliver the bad news and the good news to Israel, we'll receive that as our word, as God's word to us as well. This one's a little bit different though. So open your Bibles if you've got them, that'd be great, um, to Micah chapter 6 because he begins, the Lord appoints Micah as a prosecutor to deliver a law case. It's kind of like a literary thing. It's a dramatic way to express uh, God's message. He says, Micah, go and start a court case. Sue Israel. What's he going to say? I went on jury duty once. It was profoundly dissatisfying. Not, um, actually, it was a very interesting case. It was a murder and the guy was guilty of sin, but just as we were about to deliver the verdict, he fired his lawyer, caused a mistrial, and we all had to go home. We didn't get to put him away. Um, very disappointing not to see justice done. It also was an interesting experience to see how justice works, to see the uh, procedures and the speeches and, and how the process works. Well, here we have in Micah 6, a law procedure being played out for us, an ancient law case. And in an ancient law case, what you would do is first you would call on some witnesses to hear the case against them. Well, who does God call on as witnesses? It's the mountains. Right? The mountains are going to listen in as he brings the prosecution's case, as he sues 
his own people. Hear you mountains, verse 2, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. That's them. He is lodging a charge against Israel. And normally after that, the prosecutor or the person bringing the charge would then review the relationship so far. Here's where things are at between me and him. My people, what have I done to you? Says the Lord. How have I burdened you? Answer me. A bit of a spicy irony going on here from God because of course the answer is not at all. Right? What have I done to you that you've treated me so bad? Says the Lord. You can tell this is really going to be a messy divorce case between God and his people. And then he keeps on going with this, the story. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. And he goes on then to tell a bunch of incidents which may not be familiar or may be familiar. Situations where God has redeemed his people, has saved them from disaster. In other words, he's done nothing but save a, a, a poor and desperate people from their uh, own situation that they've got themselves into. And how have they repaid him? Well, not very well. So they, he gets to the facts of the relationship before he launches into his complaint. The facts of God's uh, patient protection. Now, what this means is they're not strangers. Right? They should know what God is like by this point because they've experienced that in history. In particular, they should know that God is not into false, empty, hypocritical worship. Right? You can't do whatever you like during the week and then come to church or come to temple on Sunday and take part in religious ceremony and think that your relationship with God is okay. Right? He's very clear about that. And he, he switches into the, uh, a scene where a worshipper is consulting a priest. With what shall I come before the Lord, verse 6, and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Bit of a funny question, isn't it? Of course you should. That's how temples work. It's like your waiter at a restaurant comes down and says, shall I come to you with mains and entrees? Like, yes, yes you should. That's exactly your job. But the point he's making is it shouldn't just be that. You think you can bring a, a, a river of olive oil as an offering? You think that's what this is about? That's what this relationship is meant to be? Well, on one level, yes. But not just at that level. That's the mere formality. What does God really want from their relationship? They should know by now. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. An amazing verse. Uh, something of a memory verse for many Christians. I know many uh, Christian charity workers have this tattooed on multiple places on their body uh, to remind them that this is really a, an important verse for Christians as we think about social justice and charity. And I, I completely, uh, I love that. I really, I really love that that is um, such a, um, a prominent verse. Um, I just want to make sure we don't leave it as a memory verse isolated from context. I want to make sure that we actually see it in the context of exactly what God is talking about here. What does it mean to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God? Well, uh, to act justly, love mercy, to... Uh, well, act justly is a great way of summing up really the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament law, everything that God requires. It's about implementing justice at a government level but also to love mercy goes further. 
not just to do mercy, by the way, it's to love mercy. And I'm allowed one Hebrew word per sermon, I think, contractually. Is that okay? All right. Mercy is the word hesed. Right. Hesed. It, it's often translated love, and it's so much more than that. Do you know the story of Ruth and Naomi, where Ruth puts her entire future on the line for her mother-in-law, though she has no obligation to? How do you think the Bible describes that? Hesed. When God perseveres with a disobedient, disrespectful, frankly disastrous people over millennia, how is his character described? Has said. To love this is what God is requiring. To love not just in terms of the way we treat God, although it is that, but also to love one another. It actually goes beyond justice. Social justice is a great low bar, but we need to be shooting higher at love, at has said and to walk humbly with God. Now, this is actually a really tricky uh, phrase to translate because it's a word that only comes up once and it's here. But it means something, I think, like to be circumspect, to not be showy and flashy in our religion, but just to quietly get on with doing the right thing, to walk humbly with God. Now, to understand exactly what this looks like, it's actually really helpful that Micah gives us a picture of the opposite of these things. Okay, so what's the opposite of... Uh, loving, uh, uh, kind of doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly? Well, he'll show you. Um, Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, verse 10, you wicked house, and the short ephah, which is a curse? Now, this is a great one. Now, ephah is a barrel. And depending on whether you're selling or buying, you would either fill the barrel very full or not at all. It's like when you buy a salad and they really don't pack it in there. Uh, the salad bar, they really use sort of like a half serving, like that is not loving, mercy, walking justice <laughs> kind of thing. That's the short ephah. They also, later on, it talks about having dishonest weights. Now, why do, you, why do we care about dishonest weights? Is this sort of some kind of like uh, reference um, kind of, is Micah really into kind of accurate weights and measures? Yes. Why? Because when people were selling versus when they were buying, they would have a different set of weights. One for the sale price and one for the buying price. You see what they're doing? They're ripping each other off. And that's part of what God doesn't want. He wants people to treat each other honestly in business. Then he takes aim at rich, violent people. Verse 3 of chapter 7. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire and they conspire together. In other words, powerful people do what they want and they just get away with it. Luckily, that doesn't happen today, does it? No, we see that all the time. Um, I think of the Crown Casino, right? Handed down a record $120 million fine for basically exploiting problem gamblers. And the reason why they exploit problem gamblers is because 40% of gambling revenue comes from problem gamblers. So if they dealt with problem gamblers fairly, that would massively cut their revenue. Well, they were found by the Royal Commission and by the gaming regulator in multiple states to be unfit to hold a casino licence. Now, if I was found unfit to hold a driver's licence, you would be surprised, wouldn't you, to find me next month driving around in a car. But in our society, some companies are just too rich and powerful to be held to account. They've just opened their Sydney casino. I knew they would. Even when they were denied their licence, I knew they'd open it. 
because some things never change. The rich and the powerful exploit the powerless and they get away with it. Every time. There's structural injustice that Michael is looking at here. There's also personal injustice. I think some of us are inclined to really focus on the injustice out there in society, all the problems that structurally need to be fixed. Mike is into that. Oh, yeah, he's into that. But he also won't let us get away with being immoral in our relations with other people at the personal, even intimate level. He describes a situation where you do not even trust a neighbour, verse 5. Put no confidence in a friend. Why? Well, even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. Even the marriage bed has lies in it. For a son dishonours his father, a daughter rises up against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. What's that describing? The total breakdown of relationships. If you cannot believe the words of the people who are closest to you, let alone the guy at the salad bar with the short ephah, then society is in bad shape. And that's what Michael is finding here. He's describing the uh, total breakdown of relationships and justice and hesed in society. Now, a bit later, in uh, verse um, 16 of chapter 6, he actually references something I want to focus in on, which is a reference to the statutes of Omri and the practices of Ahab's house. And he says, you've basically followed in their traditions. Well, may you ask, what were the practices and traditions of Ahab and Omri? I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. The kingdom of Israel at this point was divided in half, roughly. You have the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is pretty evil all the time. The southern kingdom is mostly evil, but sometimes good. <laughs> Think of it a bit like New South Wales, Victoria. <laughs> if you need sort of a... Anyway, so northern kingdom bad, southern kingdom not quite as bad. And Ahab and Omri really are a case study in both horizontal and vertical injustice. Let me give you some examples. So we read about the story uh, in 1 Kings chapter 16. You can pick that up if you'd like. Uh, this is all about 873 BC. So 150 years, 100 years before Micah's on the scene. But it's enough in people's memory that they still this means something to them when they talk about it. This guy in the northern breakaway tribes, remember New South Wales, bad, um, comes to power and his name is Ahab, not the Moby Dick chasing the whale Ahab, but an even worse Ahab, who was the son of Omri. Now, Omri was not born a king. Uh, he actually became a king by force. He was a commander of the army. He led a coup. He seized power uh, from another chap who'd also coincidentally seized power in a coup. Um, this was happening a lot at that time. It sort of made like modern British politics look stable um, <laughs> by comparison. In fact, one of the guys before uh, Ahab's dad reigned for seven days before someone took him out which is an incredibly short reign. Anyway, Ahab actually ruled for 22 years, so he did all right in that regard. But the one thing that the Bible cares about with these kings is did they lead people closer to God or further away from God? And in Ahab's case, he did a very bad job. There are two levels of idolatry in the Old Testament. There's like level one idolatry and then there's advanced idolatry, level two idolatry. They were already doing level one idolatry 
which is they're worshipping the right God but in the wrong way, in the wrong places, using the wrong types of sacrifices, um, you know, inventing their own ceremonies, not obeying the law of Moses, basically. That's level one idolatry, right God, tick, wrong way, not tick. Ahab took them the next step and introduced the worship of a false god, Baal. And he did this by marrying Jezebel. Jezebel, uh, who was a foreign queen. Now, whatever cultural assumptions you have about Jezebel, completely throw them out. She's not a seductress. She's awesome in an evil way. I have a bit of a thing for Jezebel. I feel like her reputation needs to be restored. She's evil, don't get me wrong. But she is really, really, really good at it. Okay? And what she does is she comes into Israel and she uses her power as queen. She's far more effective and efficient than Ahab. He is pathetic by comparison. She uses that to bring in the worship of her own God, Baal. And she does a very, very good job of it, turning the nation of the northern kingdom of Israel to Baal worship, away from worshipping the true God, Yahweh. At one point, she rounds up the priests of Yahweh and kills them, which is a great way of changing people's religious affiliation, right, at the, at the point of the sword. She's effective and people love Baal. Do you know why they love Baal? Because Baal is for the economy. No, I'm serious. Baal, they're voting with their feet for the economy. Baal is the fertility god, the rain god. Follow Baal and your crops will grow. Worship Baal, your family will be safe. And so people flock to it. Nobody wakes up one day and says, you know what, I think we're going to try idolatry today. No, no, it's always the promise of what comes next. It's the promise of more security, more wealth, more prosperity, more happiness. And in that respect, nothing's changed. Put your career first, just for a little while, and your life will be better. Pursue that unhealthy relationship, and then you'll be happy. Now, these are lies, always were, still are, but they're good lies. And people fall for it. Ahab never abandons the true God, but he does compromise. And that's his sin. And he leads the whole nation into this abandonment of the vertical, their relationship with God. But that's not it. See, Jezebel and Ahab are also famous for another thing, and that's a vegetable garden. It's true. So there's this guy called Naboth who's a nobody. He has a vegetable garden, a field, and it's right near Ahab. And Ahab says, do you know what? I'd really like a vegetable patch there. And so he goes and he offers to buy the field from Naboth. And Naboth says, hey buddy, I can't sell my field, this is my ancestral inheritance, thanks but no thanks. So Ahab, the king, goes back home and he's, he's kind of whining and whinging and his wife is like, oh for goodness sake, are you the king or not? Let's do something about this. Right, she can't deal with his whinging and so she forges some letters and he arranges, she arranges to have uh, Naboth killed. Comes home, deals with it in an afternoon, there you go honey, you can have the field. She is very effective when she turns her mind to something. She's a very impressive figure. So Ahab gets his field and Naboth gets dead. Now Naboth is a nobody and Ahab and Jezebel are the king and queen. So at this point, what are you going to do? Who cares about this peasant and his vegetable garden? Well, God cares. 
Even though Naboth is a nobody, God cares and sends Elijah to prophesy. This is what the Lord says, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? This is what the Lord says, In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours too. So uh, Elijah prophesies, Because you murdered a man and seized his property, you and your husband Ahab will die. Do you know what, this is an uncomfortable story given where we're standing right now. Anyone else feel that? You probably know this, but I only learned recently that there was a man called John Batman who was the, uh, one of the early uh, colonists here in uh, Victoria. He came up from Tasmania and he'd asked for a land grant in New South Wales, but that had been denied. And so he came to, uh, to here, right, to... Uh, well, it's now called Melbourne, but he, wanted, he actually originally named it Batmania, <laughs> right? which, which is a lost opportunity for history, surely. Right? We could have been called not Melbourne, but Batmania. <laughs> Just pausing that for a moment. Anyway, so he comes and he negotiates with some of the leaders um, of the Kulin people. Um, and he, he comes and he offers in negotiations 40 blankets, 30 axes, 100 knives, 50 scissors, some handkerchiefs, flour and shirts in exchange for Melbourne. Now, it's much debated what that actually meant. Uh, the signatures seem weirdly forged to a lot of historians. They probably, almost certainly, were not agreeing to sell their land. They probably were agreeing to safe passage and temporary use of the land. But anyway, it doesn't matter because the governor declared that that was an immoral and uh, irrelevant treaty because actually the Queen owns all this land, the King, it's Crown land, and vacant. And so the treaty was struck out. Shortly after, European settlers violently cleared the land of Aboriginal people, and uh, the leaders of the resistance were captured, and the remaining Aboriginal people were resettled near Healesville, and when they closed that, in Gippsland. Now, I don't know what to do with that, to be honest. But it comes up every time I read about Naboth's vineyard. You've killed a man and taken his property. As uh, Peter Adam, great St Jude's emeritus vicar, puts it, Australia today is based on theft of land. Old sins cast long shadows. This is a longer conversation than we have. Uh, something that's been raised uh, continues to be raised in the Anglican Church, what we should do about this. But I do encourage you, if you haven't, go read the Uluru Statement from the Heart um, and start uh, listening to what Aboriginal Australian people think is the step forward for us. Well, we learn from Ahab and Jezebel that God cares very much about the horizontal and the vertical, don't we? Not just how we treat each other, but how we treat God. Our relationship with him. And as Christians, I think we're either drawn to one or the other. Right? We're either the social justice Christians or we're the peace with God Christians. And I guess what Michael wants us to hear is there's not an or between those things. Right? What Michael wants us to hear is we cannot compromise with idolatry or injustice. We must hear both sides. And the verdict comes in, it's not good news for Micah. And the question is, will Micah and his people plead guilty or not guilty in this court case that's been set up against them? And that's the question for us too. Do we plead guilty or not guilty? 
Oh, I have a friend who, uh, he's told me that he sees the need for Jesus' salvation for everyone else, but he's a good person, so he doesn't need Jesus. He's pleading not guilty. I have grave fears for him. As Christian people, we're people who realise our guilt, both corporately and individually, and we're pleading guilty with Micah. How does Micah respond? Do not gloat over me, my enemy, though I've fallen, I will arise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light, because I have sinned against him. Verse 9, chapter 7, verse 9. I have sinned against him. He's pleading guilty. He's not stupid. He knows the Lord is right. But where's his hope? I will bear the Lord's wrath, and yet this also is a source of hope. Until he pleads my case and upholds my cause, he will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. How can he have optimism that if he pleads guilty, things will go okay? Well, because he knows who God is. And that ultimately is our only hope. Not who we are, not what we've done, but who God is. Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. God, you don't stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us and you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. So friends, that's why in confidence we plead guilty, knowing that the Lord is full of compassion. Now, in a moment in the service, we're actually going to have an opportunity to do that formally. Uh, but why don't we uh, finish this time hearing from Micah by giving thanks for who God is and what he's done. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you don't stay angry forever. Thank you that you actually delight to show mercy. Thank you that you love justice, you love mercy and you offer that justice and mercy to us. So Lord, we do um, plead guilty. You are right to call us to account and yet we thank you that you in Jesus have hurled all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.